Hello, and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. Join pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, as he continues the study through the Old Testament book of Judges. This is part two of a three-part study of Judges, chapters 7 and 8. You have a few moments, so why don't you grab your Bibles and follow along. Please turn to Judges, chapter 7. As I wait, you Verse 6, it says, And the number of them that laughed, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that laughed, will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go every man unto his place. And so, basically, three hundred guys cup their hands and bring the water to their mouth, and they're selected to go forth to battle. The other ninety-seven hundred are sent home. It's interesting reading the different commentaries about this, you know, like what was the reasoning? And the most prevalent is that the guys that brought the water to their mouth, they were alert, they're warrior-like, and all that kind of stuff. But one commentator said, you know, the guys that brought the water to their mouth, they were just too fat to get down in the water, or their backs were bad, or God chose the gimpy ones to send them into battle because then he'll really be glorified. That 300 studs, 300 cripples <laughs> went to battle. God could have taken a squad of Girl Scouts out there and won the battle. It's not so much about the men. Back in Deuteronomy, God made a promise to the children of Israel that one of you will make 10,000 turn to flight. In this scenario, God only needed 13 guys, according to that formula. So he's being gracious by giving Gideon another 287 or so. Anyway, we don't really know why the criteria was set up that way, but God thins it out to 300 men. Then he says two things there in verse 7. He says, by the 300 men that laughed, I will save you. So there's two different things here. I will save you, speaking of personal survival. (laughs) He's talking to Gideon, you will survive with these 300 guys. And then we see corporate survival, and I will deliver the Midianites into your hands. Basically, the nation will be saved as well. So now it's 300 versus 135,000. The odds are now 450 to 1. I'd say that's good enough room for God to be glorified. Interesting that God likes this number. When Elijah faced the prophets of Baal, it was one prophet of God versus 450 prophets of Baal. And we know who won that one as well. So God is really into the extreme odds. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6, Jonathan, as he's going down to the Philistine encampment, he says, there's no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. God only needs one man that's willing to be obedient to what he says, and he'll use that man for his glory. And so God is always the winner, for on his side then we win too. So in verse 8, the people took their victuals in their hand and the trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, unto his tent, and retained those 300 men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. So basically the 9,700 go home, the 300 pick up their stuff, and they're getting ready now to go to battle. We get to verse 9. And it came to pass that same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down into the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Phura thy servant down to the host, 
And thou shalt hear what they say. And afterward shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. Then went he down with Pharaoh his servant to the outside of the armed men that were in the host. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number as the sand of the seaside for multitude. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled unto the host of Midian. And it came unto a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it that the tent lay along. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, for into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. You know, a couple things. In verse 9, that same night, God didn't wait a week for these guys to think about their situation and what the odds were. He goes, okay, we're here, let's go, boom, and let's get the show on the road. And so there's no time to really think about it. But then in verse 10, he tells Gideon, if you're afraid, and Gideon's already sent the people that were faint-hearted and afraid back to their homes. And so he's kind of saying, if you're still afraid, though, here's what we'll do. And he basically sends them down where he can hear the conversation of the Midianites. And then as he hears the dream, then the interpretation of it, he's greatly encouraged. The dream was, Behold, lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled. Now, number one, a cake. We're talking about like a loaf of bread, something fairly small. My dream, I would have liked to have had like a gigantic boulder rolled through and smashed everybody. Then I go, okay, it would be like a steamroller. But like, it's like throwing a Twinkie into the other camp. I was like, oh, a Twinkie came in, and it's barley bread. Barley in general is what they fed to animals. Barley was a poor man's bread. The rich people ate wheat and cornbread, that kind of stuff. So this is very representative of Gideon, isn't it? Because it's not big, it's small, and it just kind of tumbles in. And it's the poor stuff, but it takes down the tent. It takes down the house, if you will. And so Gideon sees himself in that. And then the interpretation, this is nothing else save Gideon. What? The sword of Gideon? How did this guy come up with this interpretation, except that God had put it in his heart that this is what it means. See, God planted that thought there for him. And how would the Midianites perceive Gideon from any other Jewish person around there? God put the fear of Gideon in the Midianites' hearts. In fact, if you go back to the previous chapter, when Gideon was afraid and all that stuff, and then God says, okay, take some servants and break down the altar to Baal and cut down the groves and all that stuff, which he did. He took 10, what, servants, but 10 witnesses who then began to tell everybody else probably what happened. Remember the town rose up against him, wanted to kill him, but his father kind of stepped in and intervened and all that stuff. The story, the rumor of all these things taking place had to have grown in some way (laughs) that now all of a sudden it's the sword of Gideon, that great warrior of Israel. And the interpretation of the dream fed into all that stuff. And Gideon had just to be giddy. I mean, he's like, right on. He's thinking that God really has delivered the Midianites into his hand. And so we see that in verse 15. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshipped. He's not worshipping God after the battle has already been won. He's worshipping God before the battle has been fought, as if it had already been won. That's an awesome thing. That's how God wants us to fight our battles, from a position of victory. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it talks about be anxious for nothing but all things through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving in your heart, knowing that God will answer our prayers, knowing that God will give us the right answer. 
And here Gideon is doing the same thing. He's worshiping God, which is an awesome thing. And then he goes back and he tells them, he returned into the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered. It's hath delivered. It's past tense. It's already a done deal. God has given us the victory. Do you see his faith growing? Do you see the guy that was hiding out at one point? Now he's stepping out more and more and more. And what we're going to see is he becomes very authoritative. He begins to give commands. He's got confidence because he trusts the Lord. The Lord will deliver him in this battle. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And we see that Gideon is taking that faith walk. He's growing in his faith. Then he begins to instruct everybody. It says in, he divided, verse 16, the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it should be that as I do, so shall you do. And when I blow with the trumpet and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So as he gets done worshiping, he begins to develop the battle plan. They're going to have three companies of men, a hundred each. They're going to come right up to the encampment of the enemy, and they're going to stand there, and at the right time, they're going to break the pitchers, they're going to reveal the light, and they're going to blow the trumpet, and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now think about this for a minute. If you've got a trumpet, a shofar in one hand, and you've got the torch in the other hand, what hand are you going to hold your sword in? And where's your shield? You don't have any of that stuff. All you've got is God's word. God said he would deliver the Midianites. And they didn't go up a half a mile away and do this. They went right up to the edge of the camp, and they stand there basically defenseless, And they break the pots, they blow the shofar, they shout. And God is their sword, and God is their shield, and God is their defense, and God gives them the victory. He puts the Midianites into their hands. And what an awesome thing it is. And he tells the guys, what you see me do, that's what you do. He's not leading from behind, he's leading from the front. And he's saying, I'm going to be your example. And that's an awesome thing. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now, there's a good thing to learn there, that as long as somebody is following Jesus, you can follow them. And whether it's Gideon or any other leader of the nation or pastor or anybody, if they're following Christ, great, follow them as they follow Christ. But if they turn to the right or turn to the left, do not follow them. Do not follow me. If I go nutso and do something stupid, keep going straight. Keep walking after Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Lord because he's the one that's going to give that victory. It's a matter of faith. Our faith is strengthened when we keep our eyes on the Lord, not necessarily when we keep our eyes on other men. We've got to make sure we follow the Lord and not his servants all the time. In verse 19, it says, So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. And they but newly set the watch. That means that it happened about midnight. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now, as I read through this myself, when I read that phrase, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon, there's just that kind of Pharisee in me that says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Why is Gideon in there? Why is his name attached to this? I mean, I can see the sword of the Lord, but, you know, Gideon, come on. Because God doesn't like to share his glory. But you know what? I go back to the dream. I go back to the dream that was interpreted that God planted in those guys' hearts. He planted in there a fear of Gideon along with the fear of the Lord. And God's using that for his glory. And it'll eventually be turned around that way. But look at verse 21. And every man stood in his place round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. Every man stood his place. I love this. They're equipped with the word of God. They've got a shofar in one hand. They've got the lantern with a picture that's broken. And they stood there. It takes a lot of guts sometimes to do exactly what God says, the way God says to do it. And you walk up to that line and you hear all the soldiers snoring and rolling around and the armor clanking and stuff. You go, okay, Lord. And then you break that pot and begin to shout. And then you watch and see what's going to happen. And the Lord comes through every time he delivers. Verse 22. And the 300 blew the trumpets. And the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Beth Shittah in Zer-Erath, and unto the border of Abel-Meholah, and unto Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali, out of Asher, out of Manasseh, and pursued after the Midianites. It says here that all the hosts of the enemy began basically to run away in confusion and to kill each other. Now understand, the Midianites were not one unified kingdom. They were a conglomeration as we read through there's four different kings that will be listed in the next chapter. And so they're a coalition, if you will, of these Midianites who would normally be fighting themselves. I mean, it's the same in the Middle East today. Uh, they talk about peace in the Middle East, but if you examine Middle East history, you find that all these different nations fight each other when they're not fighting Israel. <laughs> they're fighting each other and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And so it's just part of the nature that God gave them when uh, Ishmael came into the scene. But the bottom line is they basically start killing off each other. And that's something we'll see throughout the rest of the Old Testament when you see the various battles. God calls his people to show up. He doesn't necessarily call them to fight. God does the work, and basically they kill each other. We'll read eventually that the 120,000 men died in this battle. Now, we're not accustomed to casualty figures like this. I mean, even in World War II, on D-Day, there was like... 50,000 guys that were killed in that short period of time just in that one invasion. And we're not accustomed to that. If we heard on the news today, 100,000 U.S. troops killed somewhere, we would be devastated, and rightly so. And so the figures that are put here, I don't think we can fathom that kind of carnage. And, and it was personal. It wasn't like a bomb went off and they all died at one time. This is like eyeball to eyeball, sword to sword kind of stuff. And it's very graphic. And so... God gives them the victory. But notice how the victory was won. It says that the victory was gained when the light from within that earthen vessel was released and the trumpet was sounded. There's a correlation there for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not us. We are that clay jar. We are that earthen vessel. Our bodies are made out of dirt, basically. And when we confess our sins to Jesus and accept him as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And now we have his treasure in this earthen vessel. But the victory is won when this vessel is broken. And it's in brokenness that we find victory. It's in surrender that we find victory in Christ Jesus. And then that light is allowed to shine. And when we hear the trumpet that calls us to be with him. What a glorious day that's going to be, huh? 
And so I see a lot of interesting analogies here. But in verse 24, it says, And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the Mount Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and take before them the waters unto Bethbara and Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and took the waters unto Bethbara and Jordan. And they took the two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, cool names. And they slew Oreb upon the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb, and pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of Jordan. Now Oreb means raven, and Zeb means wolf, you know, fearsome battle kind of names. But it's interesting to me that this whole thing started out in a winepress, didn't it? With Gideon hiding out. And where did it end? At a wine press with the enemy being conquered and vanquished. Now, before they died, Oreb and Zeb didn't have their own wine press and their own thing. But what they do is when they kill somebody there, they would name that place after them. So it's kind of a memorial kind of a deal. This is where we killed Oreb. This is where we killed Zeb. And so that's kind of how that goes. But moving on now to Judges chapter 8, looking at the first few verses. And the men of Ephraim said unto him, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou called us not when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites. And they did chide him sharply. And he said unto them, What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God hath delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and what was I able to do in comparison of you? Then their anger was abated towards him when he had said that. Basically, the guys from Ephraim began to chasten or upbraid Gideon. Why didn't you call us sooner? And the issue might have been the spoils that go to the victor had already been collected to some degree or they weren't included in some way. But, you know, God had his plan. They made a call earlier and 32,000 guys showed up, but not too many of them came from Ephraim. And so they were kind of a Johnny-come-lately. But it's interesting how Gideon handles this. We're told in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, that a soft answer turns away wrath. And that's true. He could have just jumped back. Well, that's how God said to do it, and tough luck told him to pound sand and go away. But he didn't handle it that way. He said, you know what? What could we have done compared to you? I mean, you got the two kings. You got the bad guys. He talks about the gleanings of Ephraim. The leftovers of their vineyard are better than the very best that his hometown could offer. And so he kind of placates them. He makes peace with them in such a way that they're happy walking away from it. Because the bottom line is that the mission was accomplished. But there's two parts to that scripture in Proverbs. The first part, a soft answer turns away wrath. But the last half says, but grievous words stir up anger. And we're going to see both sides of that proverb played out in this next chapter. Let's look at verse 4. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over. He and the 300 men that were with him faint, yet pursuing them. And he said unto the men of Succoth, Give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they faint, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the princes of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto your army? And Gideon said, Therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into mine hands, then will I tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. Now, two things. First off, it says Gideon and the 300 men, not Gideon and the 295 men. What I'm getting at is that they had no casualties. He started off with 300 men standing right there in the open, that God was their shield, God was their protection, and they still have 300 men. In the meantime, 120,000 Midianites have died. 
Now, the battle started off over here by Mount Gilboa. And as the Midianites fled, they came down and they fled across the Jordan River and turned north, east, and south. And basically, now Gideon and his 300 men are crossing over here. They come to Succoth. It's the first town they come to. And this is not a Midianite town. These are Jews. Remember Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh settled on that side of the river? And so he's come to a town of the Gadites, and his Jewish brethren are refusing to help him. The men have been up all night. They've been running and fighting, and now they're hungry, and it says they're faint. And basically, he says, well, hang on. Which way is the wind blowing? Have you gotten the victory yet? Do you have these kings in your hand? No? Oh, I'm sorry, we can't give you any bread. And that's pretty pathetic. But Gideon tells them, when, in verse 7 there, and Gideon said, therefore, when the Lord hath delivered, not if, when the Lord puts them in my hand, I will be back. (laughs) And you're going to be sorry, basically. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scatters abroad. Jesus says that we have to pick sides. If you take the pulse of the world, sometimes it doesn't look like Jesus is winning. You look around, you kind of go, eh, it doesn't look so good for the good guys. But, you know, if you read the end of the book, and it's just like this battle, God wins. And so the men of Succoth are making a very big mistake. And it's sad to see that. We're called to make a choice here and now. We all have to make a choice. Whose side are we on? And there's only two sides in this battle. People think that there's a third option. There is not a third option. We're either with Jesus or we are against Jesus. And knowing that he's going to win, the best thing we can do is surrender and join his team. And that's what he calls us to do. But then we move on to verses 8 and 9. And here we read, And he went up thence to Penuel. And Penuel is the next town a little farther east. And so they were hungry and worn out here. They traveled probably another six or seven or eight or nine miles, give or take. And they arrive in Penuel. And it says there in verse 8, and went up thence to Penuel and spoke unto them likewise. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he spoke also unto the men of Penuel, saying, When I come again, not if, but when I come again in peace, meaning victoriously, I will break down your tower. Now that's not an idle threat. This town had apparently a tower, like a fortified tower. And they trusted in that for whatever reason. And basically Gideon saying, When I come back, I'm going to tear it down. And they're going to be sorry that they didn't help. Then we get to verse 10. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor. And Karkor is just off the map all the way to the east. You can't see it up there. But basically they were getting out of there. And their hosts with them, about 15,000 men, all that were left of all the hosts of the children of the east. So they started off with 135,000. 120,000 are dead. 15,000 are left. For there fell 120,000 men that drew the sword. Verse 11 And Gideon went up by the way of them that dwelt in tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbaha and smote the host, for the host was secure. Basically, he killed the remaining 15,000 men. You know, he could have just driven them out of his hometown and been happy for a season. But he knew that if he left those men, even the ones that were pursuing away, the leaders and the rest of the army, they would eventually come back. And so what he's doing is what God has really commanded him to do, and I'm assuming that, it's not in our text, but what we read in previous battles was that God commanded the children of Israel to wipe them all out, to leave none remaining. And so that explains his dogged determination to find these guys and to pursue after them, 
even at great risk to themselves, as they're going farther and farther into basically enemy territory. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching part two of a three-part in-depth study of Judges chapter 7 and 8. Please join us again next time for the conclusion as we continue our study through the book of Judges and through the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you are blessed and we'd like to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road on Sunday mornings at 830 and 1030. Our Wednesday evening service begins at 7 and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. And if you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to walk with Jesus or want to know how to grow in your faith, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. All our services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you.